Hello and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast, the podcast for everything to do with the cold chain in the UK. My name is Shane Brennan and I'm proud to be the CEO of the UK Cold Chain Federation. This podcast is a new initiative we launched at the start of this year. Usually, I would be bringing you an interview with a leading figure from the UK cold chain or focusing in on key innovations that are shaping our industry. But today I'm doing something different. Over the past few weeks, I have been talking to my friends and colleagues who run networking associations and representative bodies for cold chain businesses across the world. And in their words, I've tried to tell the story of the COVID-19 crisis. The cold chain is a global industry. In fact, cold chain is one of the key facilitators of global trade. Cold chain is the reason why I, living in the UK, can enjoy wonderful Latin American fruit or South European citrus or African vegetables at any time of year. Keeping food safe and secure as it moves around the world is what our members do. We're also collectively a global front line against one of the key causes of climate change, food waste. On another day, I'll come back to the many themes, questions and challenges facing the global cold chain. But today our focus is solely on the COVID-19 crisis. One of the great things about my job is the chance to meet, network and learn from cold chain leaders right across the world. And I'm really grateful that at times like this, we can talk to each other as we have been doing to understand our shared problems and look um, at common solutions. In this programme, you're going to hear from people on the ground across Europe, the USA, Australia, South Africa and Latin America. I find it fascinating to hear these insights and I'll be interested to know from you in your feedback about how you think. But it really is striking how the experience of COVID-19, for all its horrors and the headaches and the sleepless nights it's causing businesses, it's been an experience that's been shared by the whole globe. It really shows me how similar and interconnected we are, a lesson I hope that will stay with us as we embark together on the long road ahead. What I will say is that as the amateur broadcaster that I am, it's taken me longer than I would have liked to pull this programme together. Also, you will notice changes and differences in sound quality as we move through the programme. I apologise for that. Most of these conversations took place a few weeks ago towards the start of the pandemic spread. So some events have moved on and we know more now than we did then. It is fascinating nonetheless to have on record what we were all grappling with at pretty much the same time in early March of this year. Now, before I introduce more of my contributors, a brief pause to say, please make sure you subscribe to the Cold Chain podcast. You can do so by finding us on the Cold Chain Federation website, or even better, search us out on your favourite podcast application. Make sure you subscribe and please even leave us a review. If you do that, maybe I can even pose on you go one step further and tell your friends and colleagues working in the Cold Chain about our programme. So let's get on with it, shall we? I promised you a long list of contributors, and so I'll let them all introduce themselves in their own words. My name is Valerie Dessert, and I head an organization called La Chaine Logistique du Froid. Uh, uh, David Gerlings, I am the General Secretary of uh, Decovery, which is the um, Dutch Association for the Coal Chain in the Netherlands. I'm Marcos Valenes, the Association of Coal Storage Logistic and Distribution in Spain. Uh, my name is Julie Hansen. I am the European uh, Director for the Global Coal Chain Alliance. I'm Megan Costello, and I'm with the Global Coal Chain Alliance. Currently serving in the role of interim president and CEO. Uh, my name is Marianne Kinsel. The company that I am the executive officer of is called the Refrigerated Warehouse and Transport Association of Australia Limited. My name is Debbie Corrado. I've been working at the Global Cold Chain Alliance as a cold chain director for the Latin American region. My name is Lizelle van der Berg. 
I'm the director for Global Culture and Alliance South Africa. So this program is built around these eight interviews that I held around late March, early April of this year. And I'm going to let them tell you in their own words the story of COVID-19 and the cold chain. I'm going to start with questions that I asked Valerie and Stevie to explain what lockdown has meant across Europe. Well, our country in what I'd call lockdown, uh, so our uh, movements are restricted to the, the essential activities such as food shopping and uh, minimal exercise. You're allowed to leave within a kilometer radius from your house. Yeah, we, we've got what, what the government is calling an intelligent lockdown. So they've named their, their lockdown as, as intelligent themselves. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's similar as in, as in other countries. People are advised to stay at home. The only difference is, difference is compared to most countries, like uh, we have Belgium near, Germany near, but you can actually go out if you um, uh, want to grab some groceries or want to grab some fresh air. So it's not surprising that countries as close as France and the Netherlands have got pretty much the same kind of lockdown policies in place as we have in the UK. But actually, when you listen to what Megan Costello tells us about what's happening in the United States, you see that actually the similarities extend not just in Europe, but across to the US as well. In the US right now, uh, we have uh, really are, are deep into the pandemic, if you will, with uh, pretty much everything shut down here except for critical infrastructure being medical, health, uh, food supply chain, and, and a few other industries out there like first responders and, and things like that. And not to labour the point too heavily, but also we'll hear from Lizelle, her description of how the lockdown is applied in South Africa. Of course, with the lockdown, all restaurants, QSR, uh, QSRs, pubs, hotels, food delivery services are all closed with only the retailers and spas or shops being opened and they're only allowed to sell essential goods as published in the government gazette. The shocking revelation from Rizal was that the South African government have banned the sale of alcohol and tobacco from South African shops as well. I can't imagine any European government getting away with that one. And Marianne summed it up pretty well when she explained how the Australian experience has really built on top of their pretty bad year running into the start of the COVID-19 crisis. I think Australians pretty much go, OK, so we've just had Armageddon-type fires, then we had floods straight after it, just to you know wash everything away that was now burned. Um, and when now it was just sort of a, oh, OK, now we've got this, rightio, let's, let's get on with it. But what about consumer behaviour? I'm going to run a couple of excerpts from conversations with Julie, Valerie and Davey that sum up the kind of pattern of consumer behaviour that the cold chain had to react to in the European context. Look out for the brilliant uh, definition of uh, consumer behaviour coming out of the Dutch language. Uh, well, in the very beginning of the crisis, it was a bit challenging because... Um, Consumers starting having compulsive behaviors, as I believe, uh, everywhere where the COVID pandemic has hit. Uh, so creating a very high demand from retail. So uh, possibly creating challenges for uh, the supply chain and our logistics members. But it looks like uh, things have normalized. And it's um, sad in a way to say that the pandemic is actually good for the business because... 
people will always need food and our members are there to make sure that the, the food produced is supplied uh, in, a, in a secure way to the retailers. There was a massive surge of uh, precautionary shopping uh, and everyone was joking about how, many, how much toilet paper can one person really use um, and so people were buying massively toilet paper, pasta, dry goods essentially. Um, since the lockdown, uh, obviously any activity uh, serving restaurants uh, or, or cafeterias of all sorts have completely stopped. So that's one complete uh, area where there's no activity whatsoever. People are staying at home. The trucks are, you know, at, at, at a standstill. Um, on the other hand, the surge for frozen foods in particular has been massive, particularly the first week of our lockdown. So the week starting March 17th, uh, there was an incredible increase of, of buying of frozen foods, uh, which is now slowly slowing down because a our food you know our freezers are full and and b uh, people are also realizing that actually food is still available in the supermarkets yeah. so there's been a, a stability of, of the general demand of, of frozen and fresh uh three weeks ago when the measures were first announced um the dutch population started to hoard or, or to stack up on on loads of product products uh we have a dutch word for it we call it uh, the hamster if you take nothing away from this podcast, maybe the adoption of the phrase to hamster when talking about panic buying is uh, one that uh, I would recommend and hope that you would. Now, just one more contribution on this, really just interesting to hear Marianne talking in a typically sort of straight talking kind of way about how she viewed the behaviour of Australian consumers in the run into their lockdown. Yeah, look, all of this started at the end of January and we were very, in Australia, we were very aware of it then because of the uh, international news that we have access to. And so mm. we were seeing it with some consternation, I'll put it that way, which was, is that coming here and is this going to be going on and um, will it be touching us? It wasn't terribly much after that, so it would have been February, early March, where... Uh, I think that the first one to go was toilet paper, and you know, some it was embarrassing. It's uh, I find that really humiliating as an Australian to see that other people are uh, certainly looking after themselves with a scant disregard for other human beings. It's funny now, looking back, that it does seem like quite a long time ago that the run on bog roll was the sort of dominant news of the COVID nineteen crisis. Um, but I think it will probably go down in history as one of the defining um, images of uh, of the early start of the pandemic. I'm going to pause slightly and just uh, spend a bit of time sharing with you the opening part of my interview with uh, Debbie Corrado of the Latin American GCCA, just to give a kind of flavour of a bit like what Marianne was saying of the uh, the way in which the sort of the, the COVID nineteen experience has spread across the world and sort of how it's, how she describes how it. Right, it played out through Latin America? Well, you know, they started uh, one month ago and we started to hear some, you know, news about the COVID coming to Latin America and consumers started to panic a little bit and that created, you know, high, you know, peaks in the consumption of special, you know, staples like frozen products. And um, well, you know, for for, for Latin America, and uh, and I guess we were very lucky because 
we most of the countries in Latin America are developing countries and uh, compared to Europe where we see how the pandemic was um, impacting uh, Europe. So some some countries uh, were more cautious, like I said, and take you know different measures, which of course is is definitely a difficult equation for developing countries because mit mitigation of obje objectives are difficult to achieve without you know harming the economy. But uh, the problem is that we have weak health systems and uh, and it's uh, becoming an absolute necessary decision to really take a mitigation uh, strategy. So at least it's quite reassuring that the panic buying phenomenon that we saw here in the UK was replicated across the world. But of course the key thing in this was what did we do as associations and in the UK context we were very focused on getting the message out that there was not a problem of shortage of food to try and reassure consumers to try and dampen down that that behavior something which we were able to do after a couple of weeks um, and it seems that the same experience was being led uh, by associations across the world so for example here's what megan had to say yeah sure you know it was really members of the media just reaching out to us saying hey grocery store shelves are are empty is there food left? And, uh, you know, people said to talk to, to you and, 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 um, and, and get a feel for what your industry is thinking about whether there's food there. And, and so we actually, you know, thankfully had the, that great role to play of letting the public know that our members' warehouses are full of food. And it's just right now a matter of catching up to that consumer demand, getting it out of the warehouses onto a truck and to the grocery store. But there is food there. And, and it's on the way to you. And, and really it was, it was um, just the media contacting us because I think there was this, this uh, fear by the, by, the, by the public, certainly in, in the US that potentially because the grocery stores had no food, we were out. And, and so we were able to, to uh, calm those fears, if you will, and let people know that that wasn't the case. It's funny, isn't it? That whenever there's a crisis, then suddenly everyone gets interested in logistics, don't they? Yes, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> and edu um, uh, educating people on our industry has been um, probably one of the one of the better things to come out of this. I think certainly all levels of government as well as uh, just other related industries have a, a better, much better understanding of who we are. And that message was very much replicated by Debbie and by Lizelle. Seems like some very good briefing being done there by the Global Culture and Alliance. Well, you know, the food supply continues to be very strong. And that's kind of the, also the message that we are sending out. American supply chain or cold chain is really strong. There, is, there will not be a stage that we are without food. We produce enough food in South Africa and the cold chain is really strong and food will definitely be delivered. We've heard a lot so far about the behavior and reaction of markets within countries to the COVID-19 crisis. But of course, the crucial dimension of this was the trade between countries. And I think Davey's got some interesting things to say about the experience of the Netherlands uh, and their cold storage to the uh, slowdown in global uh, trade routes. Um, uh, we had a problem with, uh, with China, with the reefers being in, in queues there, but now um, the queues are, are, are cleared, so China is now, the situation in China is better. This, that situation of queuing in the ports of Shanghai, for example, also asked a lot of storage uh, in the Netherlands. Um, 
um, export and import is getting better now, but um, we are very dependent on border policies. Uh, yesterday there was a big decision on uh, the German border, which luckily is still, uh, which is still able to pass goods through there. Um, but we are highly dependent on, on, on that as well. And um, the last thing that the market is now really dependent on is the veterinary service, uh, the Dutch government service uh, for inspections. Uh, we do fear shortage there on, in, uh, on inspections, on veterinary uh, inspectors. Something that's probably disguised a bit to the general UK consumer is the fact that um, the EU is a big single market and it has a number of gateway entrance points and probably the biggest one of those is the port of Rotterdam. And so the experience of the cold storage industry in uh, Netherlands is really a bellwether of uh, the health of global trade and the slowdowns felt there um, sort of very, very quickly impact on, on them. And that's actually interesting um, in a different context, when you talk to Lazelle and to Debbie, who, um, who've got economies very, very reliant on their export markets and how they saw the impact of COVID-19 um, through that lens. So we had a meeting last week, actually on the 2nd of April, uh, with different cold storage facilities and product movement remained stable. Um, the only thing that we had a, a challenge with is actually the ports in South Africa. Um, because of the movement of non-essential items was stopped and then they said, okay, that's back on board. We actually have to get non-essential items out of the port. Otherwise, we can't get the essential items out. So that has created a backlog and facilities are struggling to get product in from the harbor or from the port. Um, but product is still moving out. So there's a little bit of a, a backlog. But product is definitely still moving and the port should be, you know, within the next few weeks, things should be fine again for those products to, to start moving. Then uh, some of the companies that uh, are really uh, facing big challenges are the ones who are, whose clients are uh, companies that import products from um, China or Europe right so the problem is that if you see that the the companies that are working for big retailers they are you know a very busy probably working uh, longer shifts but on the other hand we have the companies that whose uh, clients they they are not moving the product at all because they haven't received the product from Europe. They haven't received product from China. So they are kind of stuck. They are not moving more products. So it's it's uh, it's more concerning for them. So moving on now to talking about another dimension of this issue, which is how we have come to view the people that work in the cold chain in the UK and across the world, and also how we think about how we keep the people that work in our cold chain safe at a time when they're being asked to go out and do the job when others are being told to stay home in order to stay safe. Megan gave me a really good description, one that I recognise from my own experience, of getting the cold chain food industry workers recognised by government as essential with all the privileges and uh, support that, that would entail. Yeah, sure. So really we started with the federal government and working with um, some of the agencies here in the U.S., your uh, U.S. Um, Department of Agriculture, 
your Department of Homeland Security, those types of agencies, ensuring that uh, they were deeming uh, people in the food industry as, as critical, a critical workforce that they were able to get to and from the their facilities. And um, along with that, obviously, we're the global cold chain, so not just the, the warehouse workers, but we also uh, represent the transportation side, so the truck drivers driving the, the refrigerated uh, trucks and, and making sure they were deemed critical, as well as some of those guys out there working on food-related uh, uh, facilities that they could finish off some of those projects to get the um, get more capacity in the system at a time when we, we need as much capacity as possible. So that really, it really started at the federal level and then it worked its way down, if you will, to the, to the states. So all the, the different states um, had their own, um, their own definition of what a cr critical infrastructure um, industry was. And then of course, what critical uh, infrastructure workforce um, would would look like and uh, but it i would say for the most part you know along with with health and medical food was was pretty logical um there wasn't a lot of convincing that needed to be done but that easy story of getting that recognition for cold chain workers hasn't been the same everywhere and as debbie explains there are different parts of the cold chain where it's been a bit more difficult, like for construction workers. And the problem is here that we are facing now is that uh, governments are not being very specific or clear in, in terms of what industries are considered essential and what, what industries are not. When you say food, well, you, you can, you, you know, it's very, you know, ex, you know, it comprises a lot of uh, 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 sectors, right? Yeah. Including yeah. warehousing and the 3PL industry. But the problem now is that with the construction industry, we have our SIVA members that they are now, you know, trying to see how the governments are recognizing this industry as essential business. Marcos in Spain was actually pretty pessimistic about the whole, the whole of the Spanish cold storage industry was being viewed no way this is a reality uh, no no the government in fact don't recognize as sectors uh, the cold storage the cold storage services don't recognize as a particular sector we are into the sector of the transport general transport of, of certainly a sense of pessimism that the government was actually doing enough to unrecognize the importance of cold storage but perhaps a bit more of a chink of light when it comes to how the general public is viewing logistics across Spain. I think that we have two situations. For example, the transport. The transports, yes. I think that the opinion, the general opinion of the people in Spain has changed. Nowadays, I think that the people know that the transport of elements and refrigerated transport is important for the people because it's necessary for to go with the elements to other all the parts of the country. Then, obviously, this is important. And the people recognize this important uh, mission of the transport The Different is the college trade services. Uh, we we are in other line, and really they don't, they don't have, uh, I think that the people don't know what's the service that we give to the, to the call chain. Now, Marianne was able to be suitably uh, clear in how she viewed and how she thinks the Australian public view 
logistic workers in the cold chain in Australia? Heroes. <laughs> it's um, yeah. the there's a lot of um, there's things like um, you know there's a, a Facebook page that's been created by Facebook themselves to say um, we, you know we it's put down you know if we can get 250 bucks we um, take free coffee and snacks and stuff to hospitals and and otherwise because the cold chain is now seen also as an essential service and that was something that uh, many weeks ago that I was talking to the government about saying we are definitely an essential service we need the same um, consideration as um, hospitals etc as far as the things that we need because this is what is literally keeping the country alive it's confidence in food quality every day and without that that's where it's going to start getting nasty so the the people that are on the ground at the present time so the hospital workers the the cold chain the warehouses the food supplies the truckies are all being seen and it was really heartening to hear Lizelle recount what the people of South Africa are doing at 8pm every evening to mark their respect for their frontline workers, including supply chain professionals. Uh, I live in a security estate and every night, 8 o'clock, everybody comes out and shouts, screams, claps their hands to say thank you to, to the people putting their lives in danger and working in this time. So it sounds like an festival eight o'clock in the evening and this has been done all over South Africa so if if it's eight o'clock in the evening you go outside and you are just saying thank you to the people working yeah and and do you think that's a feed a sentiment that will last do you think it will have a life beyond the end of this crisis or do you think it's just the sort of thing that always happens when we're in a crisis we sort of we sort of notice things like supply chain workers but then we'll go back to our normal lives and we'll forget about them again, or, or what? Most likely, it will end with the COVID-19. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I would think. <laughs> yeah, people only, people only notice supply chains when they're not working or they're under pressure. They don't really notice them in, normal, in peacetime. We're victims of our own success. You know, in the past in the past month, the cold chain has definitely received more attention than ever before. So, um, I think it's been absolutely great. And for example, uh, people working in cold storage facilities have never been valued as they're valued now. So, I think it it's absolutely great that we that we do give the attention and a a praise appraisal for for those people working. But yes, it, it, it will most likely not last after this period. Now, one preoccupation that has dominated the minds of most cold chain leaders across the world, it would seem, is the issue of how to keep our employees safe. And they've been doing that whilst navigating what has been a pretty sketchy, learning on the hoof amount of uh, advice coming out of government and other experts about what is the right thing to do. Valerie um, sums it up really well. We've got very, very conflicting information here. Um, the first uh, signals and messages we were hearing were, you know, don't bother making homemade masks because they're useless and they're not, and they're actually giving you a sense of being protected when you're actually not. 
Now what we're hearing is, well, homemade masks are better than nothing. And you just have to make sure that you wash them regularly. Um, so it's very, it's very mixed signals. Um, it's like, you know, wearing protective gloves. And in some supermarkets you see people or, or in, in stores, you see people putting on their gloves in the morning and not taking them off until the evening. And in the middle they've handled change, you know, brush their, you know, rub their noses, touch their hair and touch your, uh, touch, you know, fresh meat. Um, and, and basically wearing gloves gives you the impression that your hands are clean, whereas actually your gloves are dirty. So it's a question of whether the protection is actually doing away with your sense of, of cleanliness. Uh, and that's, so it's, it's a very difficult balance to, as you say, between uh, scientific knowledge and, and just human reassurance. Now one specific issue that cold chains around the world have been uh, grappling with is the use of face masks and actually in Europe and in the UK in particular we probably uh, prevaricated and thought about this issue longer than other parts of the world so for example Lizelle in South Africa explains what the the government there uh, required of them in early April. So the, the National Department of Health has actually recommended the use of cloth face masks when in public so I think when it comes to PPE and what you're giving staff, many of the facilities are actually making their own face masks, for example. Um, I have had a meeting with them in the past week just to find out what does the stock look like? Are they getting hold of, of everything that they need in terms of uh, sanitation and you know PPE? And everything seems in good order. So... We are making use of cloth face masks and not the face masks used by the health department. Megan gave us a good example of how the cold chain in the United States have really taken this issue into their own hands and really making value judgments of their own about what was the right thing to do in terms of provision of face masks for their employees. The members were very mindful not to necessarily ask ask mm. for masks, especially mm. the N95 masks. They were very mindful that those needed to go to the healthcare and medical professionals out there. And, and mm -hmm. so those weren't initially on our, our list of things we were asking the federal and, and, and state governments for. And um, it's they're on there now, but not, not necessarily N95s, but just some sort of, of mask on there. But I agree with you, it's been very hard to find any of that material even here in, in the US. It's mm -hmm. been uh, a, definitely a struggle to find uh, the PPE, you know, whether that's the masks or gowns or gloves, any of that stuff's been in, in incredibly hard to find. One thing that was constantly happening throughout the conversations that I had with my uh, fellow cold chain leaders was how the experiences we'd had in the UK were being had exactly the same way in other parts of the world. So, for example, both Valerie and Marianne explained to me uh, the problems that they'd experienced with uh, getting the right support sanitation for truck drivers. One of the one of the big scandals at the beginning of the lockdown, uh, when people were you know being told to wash your hands, stay clean, blah blah blah, all of the rest areas on the highways were closed mm. because the cleaning people were told to stay home, which meant mm. that all of our truck drivers couldn't find any rest areas, no mm. washrooms. No, no places to either go to the loo or just wash their hands. We've put an end to that, and they're all, or mostly all, reopened. 
um, also some of the logistics platforms of our clients or even of our own drop drivers were limiting access to um, washrooms to their own employees, which meant that you had a truck driver coming for a delivery on your plant or a pickup on your plant, and they were not allowed to have access to the bathrooms, which that's also been put a stop to because obviously, you know, you can't ask someone to stay clean and not give them access to a washroom, never mind being able to use basic toilets. There was another one that I forgot to mention, which is um, the truckies. Because everything's been shut down, they don't have enough places to shower and to wash their hands and you know for that cleanliness if there's one thing that comes from our experiences of looking after employees during covid19 i hope it's a better understanding of the importance of looking after the welfare of our drivers i guess you would expect me to ask my peers about what they think of the role of associations are in times like this and certainly in the uk we've seen significant growth in engagement with us a number of members who quite quiet normally not that involved in what we're doing being very involved with us over the last uh, few weeks and months basically sharing information learning what we've got to know and telling us what's going on on the ground julie summed it up very well when she explained um, how european gcca members are valuing uh, their network right now it's very important for our members and we see that because they uh, truly appreciate the platforms that we set up for them to be able to connect and exchange learn from one another, understand how things are going in the other countries uh, and also be being able to talk to uh, industry peers without being direct competitors is a truly uh, valuable benefit for them. And just in the same way, Marianne explains how COVID-19 has really brought the RWTA's role to the fore in Australia. It, most, of, most of our guys know each other. It's, it's um, yeah. you know, they all talk reasonably well but i think during this time the communication has become a little more open a little more relaxed um i do i'm still it seems the central person where people will call up and say hey look do you know of anybody down in victoria who needs trucks i've got three at the moment that are pretty much free so i've said look you know let's put it up on the website and then you can all do a chat line on there to say hey yeah actually i'll give you a call Davy and Debbie were able to explain in different ways the important role associations play in being providers of advice to our members at this time. A lot of Nikovri members, for instance, called us and used us uh, as the association to ask how can we cope with, with these kind of measures, what can we do? For instance, one of the calls uh, of the Nikovri members asked me, is it common in the Netherlands to measure the temperature of, of, of workers? Um, which isn't even allowed in the Netherlands because uh, it would be a breach of privacy rules. Um, so we are being very practical about it and it's nice to see that the association can, can provide uh, value for, for our members in, um, in that. Definitely we have been very, very busy trying to um, um, really help them with their specific needs. We created this website with all possible information in Spanish uh, about the coronavirus. And um, also we have provided a specific information on how to, you know, deal with any um, infected people. So any question they have, we try to, you know, answer the, the, answer the question and to provide support. We are uh, 
you know, making phone calls every day to our members just to let them know that we are here for them. One question that I asked in all the conversations that I had was, what do we think we're going to learn from the COVID-19 crisis for the future? And it's a pretty unfair question, given that we were right at the start of the uh, of the crisis. But some really interesting insights came out of that. And one of the things that sort of immediately jumps out is this question of whether we should have storage in every market that gives us that contingency for crisis. And certainly Davy, um, uh, in his conversation with the Dutch government, was very much focused on that issue. I think we need uh, a buffer. Um, I think we need some storage um, for, for when the crisis or a health crisis, um, uh, when that hits Europe again, I think we would always need a, a sort of a portion uh, of storage that we can always use as, as a buffer. Um, um, so I think if, we, if there's something we can learn from, from, this, from this crisis, from the corona crisis, I think it is to always um, um, have a buffer or, or a storage somewhere to make sure that um, uh, we can use the value of the cold chain to, to the fullest. Interestingly, uh, when asked the same question, Lizelle in South Africa was really focused on how we're going to drive the efficiencies into warehousing in, in, in her marketplace in order to try and reduce that cost of, of food in order to make it more affordable for a economy that's going to be under significant stress coming out of the crisis. I think companies will in future have to look into technology to improve their efficiencies and to lower operating costs and ultimately contribute to the lower, lowering the cost of the end products in order to feed our nation. Um, the economy will be growing much deeper into recession for some extended time and thousands of small businesses will close and people will lose their jobs. So it will have a knock-on effect on the food industry and eventually on our industry. Now, of course, those two things are not necessarily a contradiction to each other. You can have a, a, a plan for contingency and warehouse capacity to meet the needs of a crisis, as well as a highly efficient business operating in normal times. However, it does open up a question about what is our warehousing infrastructure for and who is investing in that. And I think we do have to start thinking about how we're going to make investments for the long term and the medium term aware not just of the economic needs of our customer base but also of the wider societal role that logistics plays to meet crises um, that are going to come around again in the future. One thing I absolutely believe is an important first step is a better understanding of what our capacity is in a market and that's something that Valerie uh, summed up in her learnings from the last few weeks. I've had many conversations with people I don't usually have conversations with. Um, and one of the things that we're all agreeing upon, let's just see how smart we stay once this whole thing is over, is that we've, we're learning to speak to one another and we should continue that afterwards. Uh, I'll give you one simple example. No one in this country, in France, has a clear view of the actual refrigerated storage capacity. I have some information because I have my own members' information. Other federations may have partial or total information of their own members' storage capacities or not. And, and, and we aren't able to share that. So we're coming towards the end of the program now. I've just picked two 
contributions to sort of help with the wrapping up of 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 what i've learned over the course of putting this program together and the first one's debbie i think really really encapsulates this idea of the importance of the food chain people didn't realize the importance of uh, the food industry i i mean we eat all the all the time right but you don't stop you don't make a stop and start thinking about how important is the food industry and all the every uh, link of the of the supply chain and the important role they have in the in the commerce and in the in the whole country, right? And Megan gives a good summary of the gratitude we all feel towards the workers out there doing the job in the cold chain right now. Yeah, I would say that the U.S cold chain has reacted phenomenally. I think everybody has stepped up. And I, I will say I, I commend them. It's it's challenging. I mean, they're put there, you know, while while a lot of us are in our houses working from home and, and able to protect ourselves and our families, they're out there every day going into the to the warehouse. Um, obviously there's social distancing going on and 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 the cleaning and all of that stuff, but you know, they're they're going and doing their job. Uh, knowing that they could be in harm's way, um, you know, for us here, cleaning supplies are on short demand. There's no ability to really to get testing. So nobody knows who else has it in, in the facility. So, you know, I, I really commend the workforce here in the U.S. And, and certainly globally. I mean, these guys are going out and making it happen day after day, um, just really, really putting everything out there and, and doing a phenomenal job of it. So that brings me to the end of our program. As I said at the outset, I'm no professional broadcaster. It's been an interesting challenge pulling this program together. I'm really glad I did it, though, because I think I've been able to show some key things that are worth getting on record. The first is that the cold chain matters. Getting food to people safely within and between countries is of fundamental importance to people's lives in all corners of the world. I fear that there will be those that argue that the reaction to COVID-19 is a need for greater protectionism, tighter borders and more food self-sufficiency. For what it's worth, I think it actually shows the opposite. It shows that we can't insulate ourselves and just look after our own. We are interconnected. We always have been and we are only going to get more so. So it's the cold chain infrastructure we have built and we continue to invest in that is our insurance policy against this crisis and the next one to come. The second is that our customers depend on us, probably more than they are want to admit in normal times. My experience in the UK is when the demand skyrocketed, it was the logistics professionals that took the panic in their stride and made it work. Problem solving is what logistics people do. If anything, this phase of the crisis has been the easy part. The challenge now is will the customers and colleagues remember how much the cold train came through for them and support them as they struggle to survive the economic slowdown that the pandemic has created? The final and most important thing is that our cold chain works because of the efforts of the people that work in it. One thing I sincerely hope does last is this idea of essential or critical workers. We came into this crisis knowing pretty well how important our healthcare professionals were, but did we really appreciate how much we rely on the people making our food chain work? Across the world, people have shown up for work, done their job, and because of them, people have been able to stay home and stay safe. I know that I and all my fellow association leaders across the world pay tribute to you all. That's it. I hope you enjoyed the programme as much as I enjoyed making it. Please let me have your feedback. This is a conversation I hope continues. And please check out some of our other episodes. And if you really liked it, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app? Thanks and stay safe.